The next step is really to try to see if what your muscle look like will be predictors of how you would do after surgery. Can we improve muscle size, composition and symptoms? What can happen and then build from there, you know? Hello, welcome to Myelopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity myelopathy.org. Where we talk degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and the founder of myelopathy.org. I'm Ewan Sadler, a person with DCM and also a founder of myelopathy.org. This is Myelopathy Matters. Today we're talking about what the shape of our neck muscles can tell us about pain and recovery in degenerative cervical myelopathy. Have your neck muscles ever told you anything, you? Oh yes, tell me about it. Especially my trapezium muscles on the left-hand side. They are constantly tense. You really do underestimate the weight of your own head until you have myelopathy. And I haven't got the smallest of heads either. I think I spent a small fortune in physios and gadgets as I kept on developing muscle knots around my shoulder blade until I found this novel technique where I would lie on a golf ball and work out the muscle knot by rolling the ball in that area. But now my trapezium muscles are mostly numb to the touch. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but it's a lot less painful than the muscle knots, I can tell you. Sounds like we should call it the Sadler manoeuvre, perhaps not something to be trying at home just yet. But like Ewan, Dr. Maurice Fortin, a former physiotherapist turned applied researcher based at Concordia University, Canada, has also been looking at the neck muscles in relation to DCM, in particular whether imaging to characterise the shape and makeup can better inform care. But I started by asking her how she became interested in this concept and DCM. During my PhD, I've done a lot of work actually on the lower back musculature and what we would see in, in uh, the back muscle in different pathology, including disc herniation, spinal stenosis, non-specific low back pain. And from there, we, we saw change in the back musculature, especially the multifidus, you know, including atrophy, fat infiltration, change in function as well. So I became interested to look at the cervical spine when I actually did a postdoc at McGill University with uh, spine surgeons, and they were dealing a lot with people with myelopathy. And I thought, you know, this is a compression on the spinal cord. For sure, there's going to be change in the musculature as well related to this uh, pathology. So I had access to a group. They were already studying people with myelopathy, more the effect of surgery and how they would do afterwards. But I was able to add on a project with them and uh, you know, quantify the musculature in relation to, to the level of pathology. What was the hypothesis when you then broached into the cervical spine? When you work with the spine, it's complex because there's, there's many levels and you want to look at the musculature. You, you, if there's a specific pathology, then you try to, you know, look in relation to that pathology. So what we see in the lumbar spine and what was also shown in other cervical pathology like radiculopathy, uh, unilateral radiculopathy, is that we mostly see a change at the level below, especially when we look at the multifidus 
because of the anatomy, because it spans two to three level, and because also it's innervated by a single nerve root. So usually we see most change at the level below the pathology. So my hypothesis was in the first study that I've done, I identified the most caudal level of compression. And then I took muscle measurements. So I quantify the extensor, the cervical extensor musculature. So the size, but also the composition in relation to that first caudal level of compression. So when I looked at that in a sample of 38 participants that had myelopathy, and we found that at the level below the multifidus, actually the level below the most caudal level of compression, there was an increase in, in fat infiltration of the multifidus muscle and also the splenius muscle as well. And we also found more asymmetry at the level below. So when we compare the right to left. So how are you actually performing these measurements or assessments of the muscles? I've used MRI mostly with, when looking at the cervical spine. I assessed uh, basically the obtained some of these images uh, either at uh, a private clinic before they came and met with the surgeons or they had an MRI done at the hospital. So uh, the common sequence that is done, as you know, is either a T1 or a T2. So we use the T2-weighted axial image to look at the, the muscle measurements. So we look at cross-sectional area, and we call it cross-sectional area as a measure of size, but also fan infiltration. So um, fan infiltration with the T2-weighted, the, the method that we're using is uh, basically a thresholding method. So it allows us to identify the pixel range that represents a lean muscle tissue versus a, a fatty tissue. And from a ratio of pixels that you know represents the fat and the, the muscle, we're able to get um, a, a ratio of lean to fat muscle tissue within that region of interest, within the muscle that we are looking at. Just to clarify then, so you're able to get enough information. The muscles are all in the field of view from those routine diagnostic scans. You know, there's variability in, in the way that people are, are doing this. Different researchers use different methods. But the nice thing about these methods is, you know, although the MI were not all obtained on the same scanner, the measurement error associated with using different parameters is very, very small. So it's, uh, it's encouraging to, um, to do that. And it really, because it's the standard image routine Mm -hmm. So if I can just provide a short synopsis, your starting point was really to look at you know, whether the musculature were different in, in people with myelopathy and you were exploring that in a small cohort, able to use that comparison between above and below their, their level of, of compression and you were quantifying that with the, with the MRI scans they already had. And, and what, what did you find? I was able to find a, a significant increase in multifidus fan infiltration at the level below the most caudal level of compression as compared to the level above and the level of compression. And I also saw that as well in the splenius muscle, which was also assessed. And we also found a significant increase in multifidus asymmetry at the level below. It's just a ratio, but just to give you the number, like it was a 9.6% asymmetry at the level below as compared to a 6.9 at the level of uh, above. There's not enough data to talk about this in the cervical spine, but in the lumbar spine, there's more studies that have looked at side-to-side -side asymmetry, and we don't expect that muscle are going to be perfectly symmetrical. But once you start getting close to the 10% asymmetry, then most likely there's there's something going on there related to pathology. So you found those changes. Were you able to explore whether that had the impact on the experience of, of patients, for example? 
So we use the standard parameters that are used to uh, to quantify function in people with myelopathy, like the MGOA and the NURIC scale and NDI. And we were again able to find some association between some of those clinical symptoms. And of course, as you mentioned, this was a small study, but we're moving now to larger sample size and seeing, you know, similar results, right? So, and this again is something that we we observe in other condition in the lumbar spine as well. So the musculature really affects how functional you're going to be. So in that first smaller study, I actually found an association between having more fat in the musculature and, and your time that it would take to do a 30-meter walk test. And, and I guess there's, there's probably more uncertainties in this question as well. But what do you think is driving that muscular change in, 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 those, in those circumstances? When we see fat infiltration, a common cause is having some sort of denervation of the muscle. And of course, people that have myelopathy probably also are less active, depending on where they are in, in the disease. But you know, deconditioning may also be things that may lead to some of these changes that we're seeing. But in terms of possible things that may lead to that, so what I've done in a second study, so we looked at the relationship between how much compromise there was for the spinal canal and spinal cord and what happened to the musculature. And this was in a bigger sample size. We actually had um, 172 participants for that one. And again, we found positive association there. So the more compression you had, the more fatty filtration you had in your muscle and the more asymmetry you had in your muscle again. And we also found a similar result in terms of association with some other function. So wh- where do you think this is going? I mean, what do you think the application of this sort of approach is going to be to the clinic? So talking about this with some surgeons, some realize that, you know, maybe we should definitely favor anterior approach whenever possible to spare you know, the back musculature as much as possible. If you do a posterior surgery, that is also going to lead to atrophy and change in your muscle afterwards. So that's one thing. But I think before that as well, we need to focus a little bit more on what can we do before surgery? You know, if there is association with, you know, how much, people are functional, their functionality and their symptoms with what we see in terms of the musculature, then let's try to do some, you know, some exercise and some perioperative strengthening to see if we can improve, you know, the spine musculature and if that can help these patients before they go, you know, to surgery. I think that there's a lot of room in that area right now in this field and it's, it's, it's been neglected quite a bit. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think it's um, the the issue of pain in general, and certainly the non-operative management and what that looks like is um, huge, huge, huge knowledge gaps. Yeah, I'm literally only aware of one study that I've looked at a strengthening exercise program for the cervical spine, but it was not for DCM. Uh, it was for a patient that had a whiplash injury. So they had a, a car accident and they had like symptoms that would stay for a long time. So they did a 10 weeks uh, strengthening exercise of the cervical spine and they were able to see change afterwards. So Im- improvement in cervical strength, of course, but you know, an increase in cross-sectional areas, an increase in size, and also a decrease in fatty filtration. You know, something that I've done that I didn't mention in, in a different study though, I looked at the relationship between neck strength, right? So I measure neck strength with a handheld dynamometer. So it's called a a microfet. So it's literally a little dynamometer that you have in your hand and you can measure neck strength. And I correlated neck strength with my MRI measures. So it's a 
another way to confirm that actually those markers and what we see in terms of you know the MI definitely correlates with the, the next strength. So that's another measure of saying that, you know, if we work on that, we can definitely improve what we see in terms of the muscle size and fat filtration and should lead technically to, you know, improvement in next strength and symptoms. I think, of course, you know, when people talk about neck muscles and perhaps it reflects a little bit where your professional background a little bit as well, is that we often get built up on neck pain. You know, is there any relationship between what you're finding on the imaging of the neck muscles and, and, and the individual's experience of neck pain? It's a really good question. In terms of neck pain, it's it's difficult to to quantify. You know, neck pain is is a subjective measure, and you know we don't have perhaps the best tool to quantify how much one person experiences pain versus someone else. But we do see relationship between with the NDI, which has some uh, level of how much neck pain you have in there. Um, so we did see some association there. I, I know from from my own experience in applying you know imaging techniques in this condition or any is it's there is an element of sort of variability in how we apply them and i guess the challenge here for something becoming usable and applicable across multiple centers even in a clinical setting or, or research would be to have some way of standardizing these these measurements or even automating these these measurements where, where are we up to in terms of, of that sort of concept in the muscles yeah, so it's a very good question. It's a very hot topic. And I totally agree with you. Like we want to find measures that are applicable in the clinic, right? So right now, some of these techniques that we're using are very time consuming. Because if you're going to sit and look at all the MRIs and trace these measurements manually, well, first, there's a level of training. So we have to find ways to make these measures applicable in the clinical settings. So, you know, there's different groups, including myself, where we're working on automating, you know, these measures. So where are you going to take all of your research next, building on these two, two studies now? The next step is really to try to see if what your muscle look like will be predictors of how you would do after surgery. Right. So we're looking literally if baseline parameters of how your muscle looks like in terms of size and fat infiltration, if they will be good predictors of uh, post-surgical uh, outcomes. After that, the next step is definitely to, to do test and exercise intervention in a group and see what can we find. You know, can we improve muscle size, composition and symptoms and what can what can happen and then build from there you know um and the last thing as well another project that we have ongoing right now is to we have a subgroup of 20 you know subject that had surgery and we want to quantify how much change do we see in terms of their their musculature so what did you learn Ewan? is there anything in there that gives you hope for the future perhaps you can put away those golf balls Yes, very interesting indeed. A lot of the pain the members of the support group talk about, which is up there next to nerve pain, is muscular pain. And if you've got tense muscles pressing around your spine, it's going to make things a lot worse. That's why many people have great pain relief with muscle relaxants or relaxation techniques. So it's great that they are looking into the connection between muscles and myelopathy. No, I agree. I think there is much to be gained from targeting the rehabilitation side of DCM care for sure. But one of the other things that I really like is how Maurice is basically tackling a much broader question of can we get any more information from that routine MRI scan? We've covered at length in our podcast that whilst our eye is always drawn to the amount of spinal cord compression on MRI, it only gives us very limited information. You know, for example, spinal cord compression is 10 times more likely to be a normal finding and unrelated to DCM. 
But what Maurice is considering is if you look a bit more broadly on that same scan outside into the spine, the musculature, perhaps we can find ways to establish if the spinal cord compression is causing problems. That's a really exciting future direction, I think. Well, this brings our series to an end for 2022. We hope you've enjoyed it. It really does look like there's a really bright future for degenerative cervical myelopathy with more and more people pushing the boundaries in many different critical directions. Yes, definitely. And where did that year go? I must admit, we've had some great guests this year and it's really encouraging to see so many people flying the flag for DCM. Let's keep that momentum going for 2023. But don't worry, we aren't leaving you with nothing over the festive period. We've both selected our favourite interview over the last three years. I've got December and Ewan has chosen for January. And then from February, we'll be back tackling big concepts, including cervical disc replacement and if and when surgery is the right strategy in people with very mild symptoms. So subscribe and stay tuned because myelopathy matters. Thanks very much to Maurice Fortan for joining us. This was Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. The podcast is produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. To keep up to date with the latest in the field of degenerative cervical myelopathy, why not subscribe on your favourite podcast app where you'll also find all of our previous episodes. There's, of course, lots of information and support to be found on our website, myelopathy.org. But if you've got a question about myelopathy or an experience to share, we'd love to hear it. Please do get in touch at ben at myelopathy.org. But until next time, goodbye.